the system itself is not something that is separate from us. We actually are part of the system. And so while we're basically, as we're changing ourselves, as we're changing how we interact with others around us, we are basically part of the system affecting that. So that's a really important thing because then we realize that the actions we take, they're not like separate. When we look at, you know, the world's going to, to hell and that, like nothing we can do about it. Actually, everything that we do do does have an impact on that. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy has been described by Guardian journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. Jeremy is an author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways toward a life-affirming future. His award-winning books, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning, both of which I've read and both of which I'd highly recommend, trace the historical underpinnings and flaws of the dominant worldview and offer a foundation for an integrative worldview that could lead humanity to a flourishing future. Jeremy says, culture shapes values, values shape history, and our values will shape the future. He shares a fascinating story about Christopher Columbus and Admiral Zhang that points to why Europeans came to dominate the world. And spoiler alert, it has to do with the differences between these two different cultures and what they valued. We talk about the universal values that indigenous cultures around the world share such as looking at other species not as separate from us as humans, but as our relatives, seeing nature as one extended family. Western science has now validated this view through finding that much of our genes of all species are actually shared. Jeremy believes we are in the process of undergoing one of the greatest transformations in human history, and our work now is to transition to an ecological civilization that deeply understands humans are just one part of the web of life. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Your work has enormously influenced my own understanding of the interrelated existential global risks that we're mm -hmm. facing. I've read both your books, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Life. I've also done your beautiful course through Gaia Education, The Principles of Deep Transformation. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been called one of the greatest thinkers of our time, which I certainly agree with. But I'm curious how you might introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for, for asking that question to begin with. And well, you know, it's interesting because in the old days, I used to call myself an author and integrator because 
I always felt my work was really about integrating and so many people specialize in I'm this or that. And what I was really trying to focus on was looking at the connections between all the different aspects of our life and our life and society out there. But increasingly, I've come to think of myself something a little bit different. I, nowadays, I, like, I think of myself or would call myself like a transformation catalyst because I feel like we need deep transformation, and just as in the title of the course you were just talking about. And I really... All the, my work, my writing, my talking is really about trying to catalyze that kind of transformation within ourselves, most and within ourselves, and as part of a societal transformation. One of the core takeaways from your work has been this sort of supposition: culture shapes values, values shapes history, and our values will shape the future. Oh. And there's this fascinating story that you share in The Pattern and Instinct about Admiral Zeng and Christopher yeah. Columbus and why the Europeans came to dominate the world. And I wonder if you could just share that here, because I think it's, it's such a concrete example of why our worldview matters for how we think about tackling our interrelated yeah. global challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. And I do think it's a critical importance because most of us in the world today, we, we think that the world is the way it is, like inevitably. And when we look at our, our values, we just think that is, those are the values that we as humans have. And that's what, it, that's, there's no other real alternative. And, um, and oftentimes when people look historically at how this Western civilization got to dominate the world, some historians will say things like, well, it's just, yeah, because Europe got to the new world first. And with the presumption being that any culture that would have the power to create, to cause genocide and devastate a continent and colonize it would of course do that because that's, that's the way it is. And this comes back to this point of culture shapes history and, and ultimately it's our values that, that shape, um, that culture creates, that, that, that makes that happen. And the story goes like this, like back in the 15th century, this was like decades before Columbus discovered the new world, as they called it. Admiral Zheng was, he was a, a Chinese admiral and he had the greatest fleet in all of history. He had something like 30,000 men on this massive fleet, hundreds of boats. Every one of those boats that he had basically was around 10 times the size of each of Columbus's boats. So in terms of the technology, in terms of the power, there wasn't even a comparison between them. And he sailed with his fleet all over the Indian Ocean, <clears throat> made land in uh, like places like Sri Lanka, Arabia, East Africa. But here's the thing. Every time when he, when he basically owned the Indian Ocean, but instead of making land and going, oh, I want to um, enslave the population and let's find out what precious metals we can dig out of the earth and let's see what we can do to exploit everything. He basically, he would look for the leader and, and bring back either the leader or one of the leader's principal states people back on their boat to China to kowtow to the ambassador and to establish state and the trade routes. He used his power but for things like stopping piracy. 
so the trade could happen really effectively through this whole area. And what that kind of shows is that it's not, there's not an inevitability to the way history took place, but there was something unusual, actually unique in Western, in the Western worldview, the Western way of thinking that led them to feel that as soon as they had power over another group, they had to turn that into exploiting and destroying and using for their own purposes. And that led to basically hundreds and hundreds of years of colonialism, which was the precursor to this modern world system we have today. So I think that's the, the thing is realize there's, there are different ways in which if we approach things from a different value system, there are different things that seem natural and normal rather than the ones that we take for granted today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think of I think of worldview as the sort of lenses with which we look at the world, mm, and yeah. we don't always look at the world in exactly the same way. And so those right. things are shaped by by many things, by culture, by environment, by how we're raised, by what mm-hmm. we see, by the media. Um, yeah, when I was when I was in my twenties, I actually I read Raymond Smullyan's "The The Tao Is Silent" book. I don't know if you're familiar. No, I don't know. It sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's say, beautiful. Say a little about it. Yeah, so it was it was actually my first deep dive into Taoism, and it really started me on a path of questioning what I had believed most of my life. He writes in in a very kind of it's it's funny, it's deep, it's wise. There's some chapters in there where it's like this: I'm having a conversation with God about oh. free will, and what might that conversation look like and sound and yeah and so you know i think that our our modern worldview has been very much shaped by this idea of separation and you know you and i both believe that we need to evolve to a more interconnected systems worldview that really acknowledges the interdependent web of life that Mm -hmm. that is crucial. And in the, in the patterning instinct, you go more in depth about the system's worldview. Right. And you say, in a process of circular dynamic co-emergence, the mm-hmm. parts generate the whole while the whole organizes the parts. And you say, in mm-hmm. self-organized systems, the complex interaction of many connected elements causes emergent behavior that could never be predicted by a study of each part alone. I think this is this is so important to understand and it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot. And so one of the questions I had for you is if what happens in life emerges in some sort of way that we can't control or predict then how does one go about reconciling that with consciously creating, you know, being the, the transformation catalyst to yeah. move us away from a path of civilizational collapse and more towards one of life thriving on yeah, Earth? Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a key, key, key question, Jim. And yeah, and I do think an important thing to recognize when we look at this notion of systems 
is how embedded we are. Each of us are in as these systems. So that description of the parts and the whole affecting each other, that applies to any kind of life. It applies to a single cell. It applies to ecosystem. It applies to the whole of Gaia or whatever we want to call it, life, um, <clears throat> the sort of earth life system. And it applies to our human systems. So each of us is part of these living systems. And our global civilization is itself this complex system. And so once we realize that, it does lead, I mean, perhaps the most important thing is to get away from that determinist view as if we believe we can control that system because of this complexity. But while we can't necessarily control it, it doesn't lead to the other extreme to say, well, forget about it, you know, just do whatever you do because you, um, we, it's all random or we can't affect anything. There's, and the sort of middle ground, which I think is the, is the real way to understand it, is that we can influence systems. So you can influence them without controlling them. So in just the same way, you know, for example, if a river is flowing, you can't know exactly if you put something in the river, you can't know exactly how it's going to change the different flows that will happen. But you can recognize that if you can influence things, you can uh, encourage the water to go one way or the other way, or you, you can do things that have an impact on the system in skillful ways. And there's a couple of really Im important things to understand about that. One is that to see that the system itself is not something that is separate from us. We actually are part of the system. And so while we're basically, as we're changing ourselves, as we're changing how we interact with others around us, we are basically part of the system affecting that. So that's a really important thing because then we realize that the actions we take, they're not like separate. When we look at, you know, the world's going to, to hell and that, like nothing we can do about it. Actually, everything that we do do does have an impact on that. Um, and that's not just the things we do, like choosing to recycle or whatever that might be, but also the ways in which we act with others in the world. In fact, the ways in which we interact with others may be one of the most important ways in which we can affect this overall system. Because one way of understanding, once we begin to see everything in this kind of complex, um, unpredictable, um, but self-organized system, then, the, and which is, this kind of comes back to my description of myself as a transformation catalyst, because within these complex systems, <clears throat> there are certain forms of connection which can have an outsized effect on where that system is going to go. And there are certain things that might seem very big and vocal and, and high profile, but end up getting lost in the system. The system just reorganizes around it and doesn't get changed. So it leads to the choice to, we can become, try to become really sensitive to the system itself and look at the ways in which we can impact things that could potentially have the most transformative effect on basically how the future might unfold. I've been thinking a lot about the concept of Yu Wei versus mm -hmm. Wu Wei. Right. You yeah. being the goal directed sort of purpose of action, right. which like we're very good at in our society. And that's what, you know, most of our education systems are like training us to be like very uh -huh. good at that. Yeah. And then versus the 
the idea of Wu Wei, which is like this effortless action, this sort of like being in the flow. And the kind of tension between those two things and just what that means for how you like practically show up in the world. You know, I think, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about this idea of like, how does change actually happen? Yeah, no, I I think that's so interesting, actually, because, yeah, as you know, a lot of my writing does look at this distinction between Yu Wei and Wu Wei. And this this word Yu Wei, like this notion of purposive action, is not one, I mean, many people are familiar with Wu Wei who have studied a kind of Taoism because it's this fundamental aspect of Taoism, like going with the flow. And Yu Wei is not so well known but is really almost like fundamental to civilization, if you will, or um, certainly our dominant view of the world, like acting on things, changing them. But it, so it gives a sense of an either or, a dichotomy. But what I find really interesting is to try to explore where there might be, again, something that can incorporate both of them in skillful action. And this is where actually the ecological philosopher Freya Matthews has, has written a couple of really profound articles about exactly this question. And what she has focused on, and, and I write about some of this in the book, The Web of Meaning, is and also coming out of Taoist thought was another concept, which um, basically in the, the, the Chinese word for it is something like shu. Like SHI is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced like shu, as in should. And the, the idea of shu is to basically use the forces of nature in a kind of a wu way, a s- sort of way, like not do all the work yourself, but to intentionally set things up so that the conditions make it really easy to accomplish what you want to do. So, and, and like an example, and I, I, I generally like to stay away from military kind of examples because I always feel there has to be something better than that. But this actually <laughs> comes from Sun Tzu, who, was, who wrote this Taoist book, like The Art of the Warrior. So it was another like ancient Taoist sage, but it was about uh, the ultimate ideas from this book was how to win battles without actually, have, I mean, to win a war, basically, without actually having to have battles <clears throat> and fight each other. and but how can you really skillfully change conditions so that uh, you can actually get what you want? So in his example, um, he, he, de- he described how he had this, this general and told his soldiers to go to the top of a hillside and find stones that were basically pretty much round kind of stones and just set them up just so that they're just slightly wedged in at the very top of the hillside. So that when the opposing army is coming in the valley down below, all they've got to do is like just touch these little, these boulders and the boulders run down, like roll down the hill and basically yeah, demolish the other side. So the, the notion is with, with just the minimal amount of efforts of the UA effort, you can accomplish what you want by using the forces of nature. And so in non-militaristic ways of looking at that, that notion of sure, would be things like permaculture. Which are, which is a whole system designed from 
traditional indigenous knowledge, but integrating that with modern scientific understanding of how life works to basically set the conditions for for like gardens or farming, or it could be other aspects of life to actually produce fecundity, to produce what you want, in, but not by going, not by forcing them to do that, but by putting layers together. So an example of something like that might be if you, if you have a house in relatively hot, sunny areas, you might like plant vines, like a trellis of vines in front of the house so that then and in the summertime, when you want a shade in your house, the, the vines are filled with grapes and, and they actually give you the shade. And so you enjoy the grapes, the grape harvest, and then it, all you, it loses all the leaves. So then in the wintertime, when you want the sun to warm your house, the sun comes through. So just simple examples like that, where you use the way nature works to optimize without having to put all the effort in yourself to conquer it or like trans and get it to do what you want by forcing on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is that can be applied to our systems too, to our complex um, systems of transformation. So then the question becomes for each of us, how can we do what feels natural for us? How can we go with where our life wants to take us? So in a way that is having the biggest transformative effect on the system as a whole. So not forcing myself to do, oh, I should do something even though I don't want to do it. But what's, where is there an, an, a synergy between where my energy goes and what is really potentially uh, a positive transformation for the system as a whole? I love the permaculture example because I feel like that's such a clear one of, mm. of, of, this, of this idea. And it, what you're sharing brings up for me the, the Buddhist concept of dharma. And mm-hmm. I know you talk about this in your books as well. And the way I understand the concept of dharma is the path of right action or of greatest integrity, the path that doesn't create suffering, but it helps heal it, ultimately one that leads to more wholeness and a better sort of existence for all beings. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you think one can come to uncover and live their dharma, especially in the context of today's capitalist system where you have to earn money to survive? Like, how do you yeah. balance all of that? in a way that is towards the direction of life thriving versus towards extraction. <laughs> that is really one of the hardest challenges of all, isn't it? Because it's our system forces us to go against that very notion of Dharma. And, in, in, and a lot of our system is designed, it's almost designed, I mean, if, if we're in, that, in the Buddhist context, uh, in a way, Dharma is the path of finding out, moving away from dukkha, which is the Buddhist word for kind of for generally for suffering, but it's got, it's more complex than just suffering. And it's a lot to do with this notion of 
desiring and having a sense of a separate self and wanting things always and not being content with that present moment. And in many ways, our system is like a sort of, is designed for dukkha maximization. It's like <laughs> yeah. designed to want you to always want more, to never be satisfied. And to all the dings on your smartphone to get you, oh, who's liking me today? And, and how, what are my friends thinking about that? And oh, that new car I bought, so-and-so got an even fancier car. And so everything is always about wanting that. And it's designed very consciously at that because that makes you basically work harder for the system and become a more productive cog in the machine and also be more of a consumer and consume more that the system is producing. So that's what the system tries to turn us into. So I think the most important thing we can do is to step back a little bit, step off that, what's called the hedonic treadmill. It's like the, the treadmill for always wanting that sort of hedonic form of happiness that, and that sort of transitory desire for whatever it might be that comes next. So try to step off that, even if you can do it in your whole vocation right away, at least temporarily, to take a, to get a bigger sense of realizing that realizing the system that each of us is bound up in, in some ways, and then really ask ourselves. And, and if for each of us, it's a different, and the answer is going to be different, unique to our own situation, but how can I um, arrange my life so that it, it is not gets, so I don't get stuck on that hedonic treadmill. And that involves a lot of inner transformation because right from the earliest years of our lives, the system is really designed to condition us to become these kind of cogs in this machine of like global destruction. And so it involves like unlearning. It involves shedding of certain preconceptions we might have. It involves really a, a kind of reorientation from that hedonic form of happiness to a form of happiness that is more akin to looking for sustained well-being or what, like the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle was the one who actually described hedonia as this kind of transitory sort of happiness and eudaimonia as a different kind of well-being, which was um, really <clears throat> can be translated basically as all the spirits, all the good spirits, if you will. Everything in your whole system of who you are as, a, as an organism aligned with what your real purpose is on the earth. And that can lead to this sense of, of true sustained well-being, which in Buddhist terms moves away from dukkha to what Buddhists will sometimes call sukha, which is like this uh, sustained sense of everything's okay at a deeper layer. And if your orientation goes towards that, you might still be stuck on the day-to-day, -day, having to get up, go to work, do the stuff and everything else. but it, when you set that deeper intention, you can begin to re shift the direction of your own life, begin to make decisions. Sometimes there might be small initial decisions. Sometimes they'll become larger like decisions, like career decisions, where you live, what you do, who your partner is, the biggest decisions of your life that really lead towards a deeper sense of well-being. It brings to mind Tyson Yankaporta incredible indigenous aboriginal scholar talks about the 
the purpose of humans here on this planet is to be stewards of yes. the planet. Like mm-hmm. very simple. It's it's that's that's what we're here for. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really that's a really interesting idea to contemplate within oneself. And something that I find so fascinating, having been studying a lot of indigenous writers' work, is that so much of indigenous people's wisdom that that it was arrived at a thousand years ago now has been validated by science. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for example, you talk a lot about Neo-Confucianism in, in both of your books and Neo-Confucian scholars came to see the ways in which things connect are right. often more yeah. important than the things themselves. And, you know, this is a core tenet, I think, of, of sort of systems thinking, complexity, science, mm-hmm. network theory. And I'm just curious to hear through all of your studies, what might be some of the most critical insights from indigenous wisdom that you've come to understand that you feel are really critical for us to integrate into how we're attempting to steer our civilization mm-hmm. towards a path of flourishing. Yes. There are so many different profound insights that indigenous <clears throat> cultures really across the world share, and each one in their own unique way. <clears throat> but certain kind of universal <clears throat> values and senses of understanding, you know, that some people, and like some I- indigenous scholars who have looked at this, about their own cultures, have actually called it indigeneity, meaning almost like the sense of and there are certain core universal values. And, and I think a lot of this stems from a, a profound understanding that almost every indigenous culture seems to have had around the world, which is looking at all of life, not as separate from us as humans, but as our relatives, like seeing basically nature as one extended family. And, you know, from the Western point of view, the dominant Western culture might look at that and say, oh, how sweet. You know, of course it's not true, but it's, and, if, and now that we understand from evolutionary biology, it's absolutely true that we all share what's called a universal common ancestor. And in fact, like some large portion of our genes Something like 40% of our genes are shared with plants and, and basically all other animals around us. And, 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 the, and that's not just an interesting scientific tidbit of information. What it shows is that at deeper layers of what we are as organisms, we ultimately all want the same thing, which is to flourish, to come back to that Aristotle's idea of eudaimonia is like that sense of, of fulfilling our true purpose. And as, I, as Tyson Young has said, that you could, uh, our true purpose as humans really is to steward. We do have particular unique form of intelligence that allows us to choose to be either destructive or constructive on the world around us. And it's our purpose to really find ways to do that in a generative way on, with the rest of life. And that's where indigenous values help so much. And there's actually, when people have studied this notion of indigenous values, one of the most important 
ideas that they come up with is the sense of what is known as the four R's of indigeneity. This is some um, an indigenous scholar called LaDonna Harris, who was the one who wrote specifically about this. And um, she calls them relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution. And as she describes it, these are the basically the core values that you see in indigenous uh, communities all around the world, like <clears throat> relationship recognizing our kinship obligation with, <clears throat> with all of life, just I was talking about. The responsibility is a community obligation um, and to nurture and care for our relatives, including not just other humans, but all of life around us. And then reciprocity, the sense of um, giving and taking in balance together. So we're not just always taking from others, other people or life around us, but looking at how we can give back. <clears throat> not necessarily in a market-based quid pro quo. Okay, you gave me this, let me give you, let me pay you back for that. But more like I've take, I've I feel a sense of gratitude for what I received. What can I give back? So <clears throat> sometimes it's called like a gentle reciprocity. Because like it's mm-hmm. not like this hardcore measuring things exactly. And redistribution, meaning if somebody has more of something, doesn't have to be material wealth, but more of anything, could be strength or could be skills and certain things, redistributing that, offering that to others so that it's shared in the community. And what's fascinating is people will sometimes go, well, all this community stuff, you know, don't we lose a sense of self? I, will, I want to establish my own individual identity. And what people like LaDonna Harris and others point out is that actually when you build, when you're within community and your focus is on that, and this is just a part of our core human evolutionary heritage, it actually allows us to become fuller individuals, fuller selves. I love those four principles. And mm-hmm. I think Four Arrows talks about that in the kinship worldview mm-hmm. in this book yes, as well. Yes, that's right. And it's it's so interesting to me. So so I was raised in a Muslim household, and there, you know, many aspects of Islamic tradition that when I was growing up felt like really archaic to me. That I didn't, you know, really dig deep at the time to understand like, well, where did these come from, or like why were these precepts put into place, and. One of the concepts is around interest. So Uh in Islam, interest is actually forbidden. Taking interest, generating interest, charging interest is actually forbidden. And, you know, when I was younger, I always thought of this as sort of like, oh, well, I mean, our entire world is built on interest. That's not, you know, that, that, that that's an old idea. And now that I've come to more deeply understand the way that our economic system is structured around exponential growth mm-hmm. and that interest is a core component of that exponential growth, which is then obviously tied to the amount of materials that we use, the extraction that we do on the earth in order to continue to support that economic growth. It's an example of starting to see these connections of, yeah, there's wisdom from traditional cultures, from indigenous yeah. cultures. That, that have been somewhat lost along the way. And then the, the principle of redistribution. So another sort of Islamic precept is 
you know, if you're able to, you are supposed to give a certain percentage of your income to those less fortunate than you every year. And so it's interesting to start to see some of the the commonalities between different sort of traditional indigenous and cultures and to, to start thinking about how are those things relevant in our current modern society? How, you know, where are the places where we can start to, as we've talked about, shift our worldviews to incorporate some of those those perspectives? Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the things that you talk a lot about in your books is this this concept of Li, L-I, mm-hmm. Li. And I also found this fascinating. So I think it was about a thousand years ago, Neo-Confucian scholars really set out to integrate, or maybe they didn't set out to, but ultimately ended up integrating right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Taoist and Confucian perspectives mm-hmm. into a more sort of integrated framework that explores the concept of Li or the principles of self-organization. And I'm curious, you know, first, if you could just talk a little bit more about the concept of Li and how you see it as relevant to where our modern society yeah. needs to evolve. Yeah, it's so interesting because for, for somebody who's new to these ideas, I can imagine I'm scratching their head right now and saying, what's this strange, arcane concept? What's it got to do with anything in, in the real world today? And it really, it comes back to something you were mentioning just a few minutes ago. Of There's this recognition in systems thinking today that actually the connections between things oftentimes are more important than the things themselves, which is a fundamentally different view than what our dominant scientific tradition is based on, which says the opposite, which says you've got to look at each little part, break it down. And if you really want to understand how things work, that's the only way that science works, that the reality is. And the systems approach doesn't say that there's something wrong with that reductionist breaking things down but that, that's limited to one aspect of understanding things. And there's another aspect of understanding things, which is looking at how parts connect up to understand how systems work. So that's a modern interpretation. But when I was looking, doing the research for, for that book, The Patterning Instinct, looking at these different worldviews in history, I was actually studying some of this modern systems-oriented way of looking at things, and then discovered that here, a thousand years ago, in Neo-Confucian thought, where they, as you said, they were basically, even though they weren't actually trying to, they um, synthesized not just Confucian and Taoist, but also Buddhist ideas, because they were very imbued with ideas of the Dharma and all this. And they were, what, what they came up with was a worldview that looked at the entire universe in terms of what they called qi which oftentimes people you are familiar with that word means basically not just energy but energy and or matter or the the stuff of the universe really a little bit like einstein as we know ended up with an equation looking at the relationship between energy and matter is one equation so we can see that they're really two aspects of the same thing like that's the chi but then they said but there's also li 
And what Lee refers to was the ways, the complex self-organized ways in which the chi organized itself to end up becoming either wind or the earth or a human being or a tree or anything that it, it might be on earth. That it's the ways in which those different parts related that caused them to manifest in different ways in the universe. And when I was discovering this years back now, like a light bulb went off and it was like, oh, the Lee that they are describing, isn't that the same thing as these principles of self-organization that modern science, um, system science and complexity theorists were trying to understand as to how nature itself organizes and how life works? And, and so a typical principle of self-organization in modern systems thinking is, say, the fractal principle, that often in life, um, the relation, you have a set of relationships that cohere something small, and it's a pattern that then shows up at larger scales and larger scales into something um, sometimes vast. And you can see that in the patterning of like leaves or uh, the patterning say, of our neural network in our brains or even the bronchioles and in our lungs. Everything basically, not everything, but a lot of things are organized in these fractal patterns. And the Neo-Confucians basically understood that. When they looked at Li, they would actually come up with insights like the, the, the Li in one tiny thing like a blade of grass is the same Li that is in the ultimate, what they call the supreme ultimate, like the, the overall overarching patterning of the universe. Um, and people might go, well, how the, that makes no sense. But now we understand how that can make sense on when we look at life from the self-organized way. So this is crucial because what it shows is, is that like many, many system scientists now saying like, how does this new way of looking at the world as a system, a system of systems, how can it really how can we learn from it? How can it give us a sense of wisdom or a new way of understanding values, new ways of looking at how we should live our lives? And this shows how the insights from these ancient traditions, they're not just, um, uh, just interesting in their own way or and just worthwhile to study for what they were based on then, but we see that they're, they actually were looking at uh, the same underlying principles of the universe that modern science is validating now. So then these, um, we see that the, the, the great core understandings of systems like Buddhism or Taoism or indigenous wisdom are not separate from science. And the, the breakdown that we usually have in our world saying science is over here and spiritual stuff for quality stuff is over there, and we don't really, and we got to see them as separate. We realize that these, these distinctions themselves are actually false distinctions. And once those barriers break down, everything begins to change because we get to see values actually arising from the core principles of our lived existence. And you know, basically life itself can become a source of values that when, then we can apply to our own lives and to what basically is the role of humans on the earth. So it really begins to shift the foundations of how we make sense of the, of the world. If we study the rise and fall of civilizations in the past, 
we see that every civilization that has ever existed has collapsed typically around the three to four hundred year mark, which is about where our current global capitalist-based kind of civilization is approaching. And I think many scientists and uh, ecological anthropologists, economists would say that our current trajectory is that we are heading towards collapse. And I know you talk about three possible scenarios unfolding. And so the first being business as usual. We basically keep doing what we're doing. And we, we as a society, will ultimately collapse. And, and obviously, we're already seeing that in different parts of, of the world happening. The second is this, this sort of what you call techno split. Mm-hmm. So we develop a generalized AI that is smarter than us, and it takes over and directs the path that humanity takes. And the third is this transition to what you call an ecological civilization. And I know, I believe that that, that third aspect is, is the focus of a book that, that you're working on. And so I think the first question I'd have is if you can just briefly describe what you think the techno split world could look like. There's a lot of conversation obviously these days about AI and the direction that's going to take and then I want to spend more time talking about yeah. the ecological civilization yeah sure yeah absolutely and uh, yeah these, these are big questions and uh, the one thing we really can be pretty sure about is that this century we are in the process of undergoing one of the greatest transformations in human history I mean, there's only really been a few times when the, really the entire experience of being a human being shifted, right? One was when we went from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to the rise of agriculture and agrarian civilizations beginning about 10,000 years ago. And then another was really with the scientific revolution in Europe, which led to colonialism and this transformation of um, basically our lives over the last few hundred years both for good and for bad, for different in people and in different ways. But now we can be pretty sure we're going through that same transformation. But the, to your point, we don't know which way it's going to go. So collapse is one obvious place that increasingly people are beginning to get concerned we may be headed for. And there's a lot of reason to be concerned about that. But then that techno split scenario really in it might be an answer as to why, because oftentimes you say, why aren't the powerful elites more concerned about collapse? Why aren't they doing something if they, and they can see as early as we can what's going on? Because my sense is that a lot of them, um, maybe implicitly or maybe among themselves, they're more explicit about it. Go, well, if the, the rest of the world can collapse, it doesn't really matter as long as we look after our own, which leads to this notion of a fortress earth. like. And where the elites basically barricade themselves off from the destruction taking place everywhere else. And there, as long as they have their supply lines working and so that they, they can do so, they can develop more and more enhanced technologies, even neurally enhanced that genetically 
enhance themselves and neurally uh, connect up with the AI. And um, there's all these Silicon Valley type folks and other people from around the world who get excited by this notion of what what could we could be transhumans? We can evolve to a whole self evolve to a whole other dimension. But meanwhile, they're leaving. It's almost, that's why I call it techno split because it's splitting the human race basically into two species. One of which um, is left to endure this disaster of collapse, while the other gets to explore different dimensions. And from a moral standpoint, I would say that that is even more egregious than a total collapse. It's a little bit like people on these gilded lifeboats watching the, everyone else scrambling and drowning and going, well, stay out of our boats, you know, because we just, we, we, got, we want to make sure we're looking after ourselves. And that's why I feel it's important to look at that scenario, because in many ways, that is the scenario we're headed towards with these incredible divergence, these incredible inequalities that we're seeing and the barriers being put up around the world for people migrating from those parts of the world that are getting the devastation of climate breakdown and ecological breakdown and are unable to even come to some of the places where they might be able to eke out some kind of living because the barriers are getting put up. That's something we need to look really clearly clearly at. But like you say, the it's worth spending more time on looking at what is actually possible because neither of those two scenarios are the slightest bit desirable for the vast bulk of humans and most of the rest of life on, on this earth. But there is a scenario where we could actually transform the underlying basis of our civilization, this um, system that's based on extraction and exploitation that arose from Europe in the late, in the sort of uh, early modern period with colonialism, with a scientific revolution. It's a system we know nowadays by the name capitalism. It's global capitalism, which is dominated by these massive corporations whose sole purpose is to um, maximize shareholder value. So you were talking a little bit about AI. It's almost, and you know, people worry about AI taking over the world if it's um, designed to do something that's not for the benefit of humans. And that's actually something that really, uh, we can see global capitalism itself like that. This designed just uh, for maximizing exploitation of resources, exploitation of people for creating that hedonic treadmill we were talking about earlier. And so the idea behind an ecological civilization is to start to visualize what things could look like if we were to actually set a different foundation for our entire civilization, one that was based on setting the conditions basically for on everybody, for all people to flourish on a regenerated earth. And what would those conditions be that could enable that to happen, not by some sort of, <clears throat> some sort of communist style <clears throat> enforced blueprint that is pushed on people. But what if you actually set the conditions where human beings, as we've evolved, naturally act in ways that leads to really more like those four R's we were talking about before of indigeneity, that sense of relationship, that sense of reciprocity. What would happen if we actually organized our society around that, if we organized technology around that? What would happen if we educated children 
to actually want to flourish in that world rather than to be cogs in this machine of destruction. And what is so fascinating is, um, and this is something as you say, I've been, I've been actually researching it deeply because I'm um, in the process of writing a book on exploring what this could look like. The title would be Future Flourishing, like Pathways Toward an Ecological Civilization. And we get to see that actually wonderful experts in every aspect of society, whether it's urban design or technology or agriculture or <clears throat> the economy or uh, manufacturing, every aspect of society, they've already thought through what this could be like. But in each case, there's like individual strands of possibilities, which by themselves wouldn't work because you could look at some great idea like a circular economy or agroecology, whatever it might be, or take technology and <clears throat> empower grassroots through a decentralizing information systems, whatever. You can say, yeah, but it wouldn't work because the way our system works right now is this would stop it or that would stop it. But when you look at all these different strands and weave them together, you can see the, a coherent alternative picture of what's possible begins to arise. And that is so important because a lot of us right now, we're very clear about what is wrong. We see that all around us, but it's very difficult for us to visualize what can take its place. But there is this possibility. And I feel like the first step of moving towards that possible, that life-affirming future is to begin to name it, begin to see that it's possible, and then to see that um, all, so many of the different areas that many of us are working in, in different aspects around the world, we can begin to realize is actually part of that movement towards that flourishing future. And by doing that, we get to strengthen those connections between us um, in that transformative way. Yeah, I listened to a panel discussion that Nate Hagens actually yeah. had on his podcast. I think it was a couple of days ago. And one of the guests was Nora Bateson. Mm -hmm. And he asked this question of, to the panelists, what would it, what could an ecological civilization look like? And I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially she said, even the idea of defining what an ecological civilization could look like is a completely unecological process because it interrupts what it's possible for us to create. Mm -hmm. um, she talked about, we often try to jump to figuring out what's the solution. And, and then we use our engineering minds, you know, to create the yeah. vision or the map of the solution. And that yeah. that's exactly the wrong approach. And, and she said something like the key question is more about not like what's the solution, but who, who can, who can one be when they're with me? So it's a, it's about that concept of relationship. So in the moment of crisis, you know, there's a possibility to create a more beautiful world together, one that we can't even imagine right now. And so I'm curious how that kind of lands with you. Yeah. And I suppose it relates to what we talked about earlier a little bit in terms of Yu Wei and Wu Wei. And, sure, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think, I, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, Nadja. And it relates to a very deep question in terms of to what extent should we try to define something that we move towards and to what extent should we be present and just kind of 
let ourselves be more in that Wu way of moving to wherever it takes us. And remember earlier, I was making this distinction between, well, we can't control these complex systems that we're part of. We can influence them. And so uh, where I would agree with Nora, <clears throat> and that when you try to define something, you, it's a very, it goes against the very notion of what an ecological civilization could and should be. In the sense that we can think of the, what the root word of define means, which is basically to set a limit around something. So when you define something, it's like you take a, a very clear line, say, I've defined this is what it is and that's what it's not. And that's equivalent to like setting a blueprint, you know, saying, okay, this is what an ecological civilization should be like. This is the foundation, this is the walls, this is the roof, that, and now build it. I agree with her totally. But the, it's also possible to, if you were trying to influence rather than define, it's possible to have a, a shared visualization of something that we can be moving towards. And look at what um, we can do to, as I said before, set the conditions for that, rather than um, saying this is exactly how it's meant to be. And you know, a nice a, an analogy that I like to use is, think of something like, um, it's like the concept of a framework. And when I think of framework, think of something like a climbing frame that kids play on in the, in the playground. Now, the definition, the, the, the distinction I'm making is if you try to define something, it's like it, it's imagine it rather than being a climbing frame, it's like you've created something which only allows one way of being. It's got a roof, it's got walls. You go inside it, you can do whatever it is that the machine is telling you you're meant to do to play with or whatever. And that's it. That's, that's where you're limited to. But a climbing frame basically is like a, um, a kid can get into it, climb up, and actually build from it. Can, uh, the, the kid can swing on different aspects of it or go out from the frame, build something from it or whatever. So it's like the framework is this solid grounding of something that then allows each individual person and culture and group to build from it in their own unique ways. And that's where I feel there's incredible value in visualizing an ecological mm. civilization. We can give a name to it, like ecological civilization, because that gives and has a sense of an inspiration. What it would be like if we actually build a civilization on the same principles that life itself evolved complex ecologies. And one of those principles is integration, which is a sense of unity with differentiation. And so where I agree with Nora and others who have similar, make similar points, like Bayer Kamalafi is another one, and Charles Eisenstein is somebody else, with these perspectives of let's not get too fixed on some sense of we've got to build exactly this. While I agree with them on that, I also feel there's incredible value to looking at how the foundation can be re and basically transformed so that then the, Everything can grow in its own unique way, but from a more, from an actual fertile, life-affirming foundation rather than this destructive one we're on right now. So that's mm. um, a, a, a kind of nuance between that perspective 
and what I feel is impossible. Yeah, yeah I love that. And yeah, I'm going to sit with that one for, for a while. <laughs> I, I know we're coming to the end of our time. I, I wish we had more time to chat. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess just to close, who would you like to platform? Oh, yeah. Somebody that I really think would deserves a much bigger opportunity to share her ideas relates a lot to a lot of what we've been talking about. Her name is Darsha Narvaez, last name N-A-R-V-A-E-Z. And she's actually a co-author with Four Arrows of the book that you mentioned earlier on Indigenous cultures. But she also is a very, very deep thinker in the area of evolutionary psychology and child rearing. And she describes a lot about the concept of an evolutionary niche that humans have and, and how and in uh, traditional hunter-gatherer cultures, kids grew up in a very different way from how they're raised today. And, and how they're raised today basically is, is pathological for us human beings. And it leads us to be basically unhealthy people and acting collectively in ways that are bad for ourselves and all of life on earth. Whereas if we can look at and really look from the very beginnings of infancy onwards, we can actually allow um, children to grow into full, fully fledged, healthy human beings by, by recognizing these differences. So she's somebody who I feel has got a very profound understanding of what's possible if we reorient how we think about basically child rearing and raising uh, children all the way to adulthood. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. I really appreciate it and look forward to reading the new book when Great. it comes yeah. out. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. If you like the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, Subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together. <laughs>